are listening to an audio sermon from Fort William Baptist Church. We are located in Thunder Bay, Ontario. To find out more about us, please visit www.fortwilliambaptistchurch.com. Thank you for joining us today. It's been a long time since I've been able to say that, and it's, it's good to go back to Mark's Gospel. Mark, Mark, to me, is a good friend, and good friends, you can go back and you can pick up your conversation uh, right where you left off. And so I hope it's the same for you, that Mark has become your good friend as well. And so we're going we're gonna to look at Mark chapter 12, uh, verse 13 through verse 17 this morning. So give your attention to God's word. And they sent to Jesus some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap Jesus in his talk. And they, they came and they said to Jesus, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why do you put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one, and he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. And Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. Father, would you now bless the reading and the preaching of your word. So the Gospel of Mark is before us once again, and we can begin our time together by considering a question. Perhaps the most important question we can ask of Mark's gospel, and it's this. Well, what is, what is this revolution all about that Jesus has started? What does it mean? What does it mean to join Jesus' revolution? And throughout the Mark, gospel, Mark's gospel, we have heard Jesus preaching a distinct message. He has issued a summons to Israel. He showed up in Galilee and began preaching in the small villages this message, repent and believe in the gospel. And we can rephrase Jesus' preaching like this. We can rephrase it. Jesus is saying, join my revolution, fall in among my ranks, commit yourself to my cause. But this gets interesting when we start reading through Mark's gospel, when we start paging through it. Because when we look closely at Jesus' ministry, when we look closely at the revolution he starts, it's a very interesting, we could even say, strange revolution. Because when you open up Mark's pages, we don't find Jesus having war parties where he he gathers his military leaders and has military strategy. Rather, what do we find in Mark's gospel? Well, we find Jesus throwing parties for sinners and tax collectors. He's dining with men and women of ill ill repute. In Mark's pages, we don't find Jesus giving electrifying stump speeches as a, as a politician. Rather, what do we find Jesus doing? Well, we find Jesus preaching in parables. These sayings that are opaque and obtuse and, and the crowds who are outside the kingdom of God can't make sense of them. We don't find Jesus mucking it up with the powerful politicians. Rather, we, we find him feeding the crowds, giving bread to them. We find Jesus healing the sick. We find Jesus dwelling with the downcast. Even more, in Mark's pages, we don't find a portrait of an ambitious politician who's trying to climb the political ladder. Rather, we find in Jesus someone who's actually climbing down the ladder. 
This is a strange revolution. Jesus talks about suffering. He talks about death. And he has his heart set upon a cross. And so if Jesus summons in our ears, repent and believe in the gospel, or we could say, join my revolution, commit yourself to my cause, fall in among my ranks, we can ask and we should ask, well, what does it mean? What does it really mean to join this revolution that Jesus has started? And it's here that we come into contact with our text because Jesus gives us an answer. He says in chapter 12, verse 17, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. So we ask, well, what does it mean to join Jesus' revolution? Jesus answers, render to God the things that belong to God. And render, this word that Jesus uses, is a word that we rarely use in our own day, but it comes from the, the context of contractual obligations. Pay out, pay back, f- fulfill. An employer is contractually obligated to render payment to his employees. So as an employee, you you work your hours, you fulfill your contract, and the employer renders payment. He pays out. Likewise, a borrower is contractually obligated to render repayment to the lender. The borrower must do what? He must pay back. And Jesus picks up on this language of contract and he's applying it to humanity. He articulates the summons of the gospel very clearly. Humanity is under contractual obligation to render themselves to God. And what Jesus is doing here is he's calling all of humanity to universal, unalloyed, unreserved, unqualified obedience to the God of Israel. That's what it means to join the revolution. It means to render ourselves to God. And so as we look at this passage, we're going to consider it from three different angles this morning. First, we're going to consider the the problem of Jesus' summons because there there is a problem with Jesus' words. Second, we're going to consider the solution to Jesus' summons. And then finally, we're going to make some applications and consider the the practicality of Jesus' summons. So we'll begin by considering the problem of Jesus's summons. So verse 17, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. This this summons that Jesus gives arrives to us from a controversial exchange between Jesus and the Pharisees and the Herodians. So if you look at verse 13, we we learn that these two groups have joined together in order to trap Jesus. And this is an odd alliance. The, The Herodians were largely sympathizers with Rome and the Pharisees largely disdained Roman rule. But here these two factions have joined together because they agree about one matter, the threat of Jesus. If you look back at Mark chapter three, verse six, we see that these two groups have made a pact. They've made a pact to destroy Jesus. That's their aim. And so for their plan to go forward, they have to find some incriminating evidence against Jesus so that they might get rid of him, destroy him. So in their eagerness to get rid of Jesus, they finally resorted to setting traps for Jesus. So my father, he trapped for many years before he had children. And when you think about trapping, there are two important factors to keep in mind. The, the first factor is when you, when you go to trap, you have to, you have to camouflage your trap. The trap will never catch an animal if it has been hastily placed. And so the trapper will put the trap in the woods and and cover it with leaves and sticks. Because if you don't, the animal is going to see something out of ordinary in its its habitat and likely avoid it. And so these Jews come to Jesus and they're camouflaging their trap. They cloak their evil intentions with sincerity. 
seeming sincerity and flattery. We see it in verse 14. They say to Jesus, Teacher, we know that you are true, and you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you're not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Did these men really believe this? No way. But they're baiting Jesus. You always tell the truth, Jesus. You're not a coward, Jesus. You're going to go out and you're going to speak the truth. Come out now and tell us what you really think. And so when you consider a trap, the second thing you have to consider is that a trap must be strategically located. You camouflage it and you also place it with a strategy. So a good trapper doesn't randomly set traps around the forest. You wouldn't catch very many animals, but the trapper goes out and and studies the lay of the land. Even more, the trapper studies the animal. Well, what do animals do? They like to find shelter, they like to eat, they like to drink. And so you're going to find a path where that animal's traveling a lot, and that's where you're going to put the trap. And these Jews have a strategy as well. And here in the text, these Jews aren't dealing with peripheral matters anymore, like the tradition of the elders or debates about divorce. They're going for the jugular. So they ask Jesus, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? And this is a really good trap. Why? Well, if Jesus answers in the affirmative, yes, it is lawful to pay taxes to Caesar, what's going to happen? Well, he's going to alienate himself from the populist movement in Israel. But if Jesus says, says, no, it's not lawful to pay taxes to Caesar, well, he might ingratiate himself to the populist movement. He surely is not going to ingratiate himself to Rome. And Rome might take action against Jesus as an insurrectionist. And so what we have here in the trap is a conundrum. If you say yes, you're in trouble. If you say no, you're in trouble. So what is Jesus going to do? How is he going to maneuver this situation? And so we have to be clear here as we look at this text that what follows is not principally a political manifesto of how the church and the state should act together. Caesar does his thing over here and the Lord Jesus does his thing over here with the church. This isn't what Jesus is concerned about. And if we go to this text looking for a a political manifest, we're going to be disappointed. Rather, what Jesus is going to do in this text, he's going to expose the rebellion in the hearts of these men. And so Jesus goes to work. Verses 15 through 17. Mark records, But knowing their hypocrisy, Jesus said to them, Why do you put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one, and he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. And Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. So we just need to camp out here a bit, because there's some important things happening in these three verses. Jesus makes three moves as he negotiates this answer. The first move is this. Jesus operates from an understanding of the human heart. So Jesus, as these men come to him, he understands what's in these men's heart. These men are not earnest seekers. Rather, they are hypocrites. Even more, they've come to test Jesus. And test is an important word to think about because who else has tested Jesus in the Gospel of Mark? We go back to the beginning. It was Satan who met Jesus in the wilderness who tested Jesus. And so these men are falling in rank with Satan. So Jesus operates from an understanding of the human heart. He understands these men. And secondly, Jesus then forces their hands. Jesus understands that these men 
are not earnest seekers. They already have answers in their own minds. And so Jesus speaks to them. He says, bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And this is where it gets interesting because these men don't respond. Jesus, well, we don't have one on us, actually. Let's run off and find one. Rather, what do these men do? They, they produce a coin. There's no hesitation in the story. There's no delay. They, they bring out the coin. They show it to Jesus. We ask, well, why does this matter? Why all of this talk about coins? Well, coins in the ancient world were not cultural, neutral cultural artifacts. In fact, this very coin in question can be seen today. You can pull it up on, on Google. So on the one side of this coin, when you pull it up on Google, you see a bust. You see a picture of Tiberius Caesar. And under his picture, there's this, this caption It says, Tiberius Caesar Augustus, son of the divine Augustus. Or we could say, Tiberius Caesar Augustus, son of God. Interesting. Who else have we heard this language about? Well, you go back to Mark chapter 1, verse 1. How does the story begin? Mark says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the who? The son of God. And on the other side of this coin was a picture of Tiberius' mother, And it also bore an inscription which said, high priest, lofty term for just a man claiming to be the intermediary between God and man. And so if you spend any amount of time thinking and looking at this coin, you see that it's not simply a matter of economics, but worship is integrally intertwined with this coin. It's idolatrous. For there is only one son of God, the Lord Jesus himself. And here are these men carrying around coins with blasphemous inscriptions in their pockets. So Jesus knows what's going on in their hearts. He forces their hand and then he exposes their hearts. So after looking at the coin, Jesus asks these men, he says, whose likeness and inscription is this? Easy question. These men say, well, it's Caesar's, duh. So what does Jesus recommend? Well, he says, render to Caesar's the things that are Caesar's. And the logic is straightforward. These are Caesar's coins. His image is upon it. His name has been inscribed upon it. So pay back to Caesar his idolatrous and blasphemous coins. Give them back. And Jesus' answer is so remarkable because he's navigated the tension He doesn't spark revolution because he doesn't pander to the populist movement. He doesn't call Israel to to rise up in revolt against Rome. Pay back to Caesar what is Caesar's. And at the same time, he doesn't commiserate with Rome, this idolatrous nation. He says, pay back to Caesar's what is Caesar's. But we have to be patient with this text. Because there's a wordplay at work here. And if we miss this wordplay at work in the text, we actually miss the whole point of the text. We miss out on what Jesus is actually doing as he deals with these men. So Jesus asks these men, whose likeness and inscription is this? And as students of the Bible, this should jog our mental concordances. Whose likeness and inscription is this? Where have I heard those words before, we think? Well, we go back to the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. The the Lord says, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. So we find here that Jesus is not simply talking about coins. He's actually talking about these men. Whose likeness has been imprinted upon them? Well, it's God's. Whose image do they bear? It's actually God's. Who do they belong to? God. 
And when we make this connection, we're given insight into the purpose of Jesus' words. Render to God the things that are God's. What Jesus is doing is he's opening up the whole matter of the kingdom of God, what his whole revolution is about. He preaches to these men, God's image is stamped upon you. you. You bear his inscription. So what must you do? Well, you must render yourself completely to the God of Israel. That's what Jesus is preaching And this is where we meet a problem, and the problem isn't taxes or the right of taxation. While these men are arguing about taxes, they miss the most important issue about the kingdom of God. They miss the whole issue about Jesus' ministry. They have failed to pay back to God what is rightfully and truly his. They would not render to God their hearts or their souls or their strengths or their being. And what we find exposed here in this text as Jesus works with these men is the fundamental problem of humanity from the very beginning of the story. Go back to the beginning of the story. Think about Adam in the Garden of Eden. He was fashioned in the image and likeness of God, created in righteousness and holiness. But what happens in this story? Well, he refuses to render himself to God. Or you fast forward in the story, we meet the character Noah. God saves him through the midst of the flood. He gets out from his ark, plants a vineyard, drinks too much wine, lays down, gets drunk, he's exposed, sin. He refuses to render himself to God. Think of the Tower of Babel. There's the the people of the earth rallying together in stubbornness and they refuse to render themselves to God. Or, Or think of the firstborn son of Israel. God rescues his people from Egypt. He outstretches his mighty arm. He draws them out. What do they do? They murmur, they murmur, they murmur against God. They refuse to render themselves to their God. And the saddest part of the story is that this just isn't true of Israel. It's true of all of humanity. This is our story. Each one of us bears the image, the likeness of God. And what have we done? We have refused to render ourselves to God. We're like a coin stamped with God's bust upon it. His name inscribed upon us but we've refused to pay back. Paul talks about this in Romans chapter one. He gets this issue perfectly. He says, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. God created humanity to worship and serve him, but in our sin we have refused to give worship and service to the God who made us. So Jesus comes to us, he summons us, he says, render to God the things that are God's, and here is our problem. We haven't rendered to God what is rightfully his. And so we find when Jesus preaches here, he's exposing us for who we are, just like he exposed the Pharisees and the Herodians. But that's not all that Jesus does here. We have a problem because Jesus exposes us, but we also find a solution in our text. And we have to be clear here about the solution. The the solution is not a matter of moral striving as if God said, now, well, get your act together, straighten up, buckle up, and you'll enter the kingdom of God. If that were the case, God would have simply dropped a, a pile of textbooks out of the sky, told us to read them, memorize them, obey them, and you will enter the kingdom of God. But that's not what God has done, and that's not what we find happening in the Gospel of Mark. Humanity doesn't work like this. 
What do we find in the Gospel of Mark? Well, again and again in the narrative, we find that humanity has not rendered itself to God. We look at the religious leaders, for example, in the Gospel of Mark, these men called to lead and serve Israel. Rather, what do we find them doing? Well, we find them plotting Jesus' death. We find them following man-made rules. We find them actually robbing their parents. We look at Jesus' hometown. Here are Jesus' neighbors and friends. These people knew Jesus from when he was born. What do they do with Jesus? Well, they don't take Jesus at his word. Or or look at Jesus' own family, his mother and his brothers. Jesus is doing all these mighty deeds. The crowds are gathering around him. And what what do his family members say? Well, they say, he's out of his mind. We can even think about Jesus' own disciples. These men who know the love of Jesus, the care of Jesus, these men refuse to render themselves to God. They're, as Jesus talks about the cross, these men are, are planning who's going to have positions of power in the kingdom of God, who's going to climb the ladder the first. But against this backdrop of human failure we see in Mark's gospel, we see something else. Because when we scan through Mark's gospel, somebody looks different than all of these people. Somebody acts different than all of these people. Somebody lives different than all of these people. And it's Jesus. That's why Mark has written this story, that we might see the achievements of Christ. And so we have a need this morning to to recognize just how different Jesus is from us. And we can just focus our attention on three events in the life of Jesus that, that help us see the solution to our problem. The first event comes from Jesus' baptism. So Jesus is baptized in the Jordan River and as he comes out, he hears these words from his father. The father speaks and says, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. This is a a glorious scene to consider. What's happening here? Well, the all-knowing, the all-wise, the all-powerful God fixes his eyes upon the incarnate son of God. He looks into the very recesses of Jesus' soul. He examines the very depths of Jesus' mind and he finds, what does he find? He finds only that which brings him pleasure. In Christ, there's only the true, the good, and the beautiful. There is no hidden nook of sin in Jesus. There's no hidden cranny of darkness in Jesus. What the Father sees in Jesus as he looks at him with his penetrating eyes, all he finds is delight in the Son of God. We think about ourselves and all we can say is, oh, how different Jesus is than us. Oh, how different Jesus is. Or we can move ahead and consider the 40 days that Jesus spent in the wilderness. There he is by himself, weak from fasting. And who does he meet? Well, he meets the tempter and the tempter goes to work. But what do we find of Jesus in the wilderness? Well, we find perfect obedience. He doesn't make compromises with sin. He doesn't mutter or murmur against his God. We don't find him considering sin. We don't find him giving in to despair. Rather, he cries out, be gone, Satan. As we consider our own lives when we're facing temptation, all we can say is, oh, how different Jesus is. Or consider the, the moments directly before Jesus' betrayal. So there Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane, 
And he's facing the coming disaster of the cross. He's gonna be baptized in the wrath of God. And every molecule in Jesus' body urged him towards self-preservation. Save yourself, save yourself, save yourself. But even faced with this, Christ remained true and he uttered the most precious words, yet not what I will, but what you will. And as we look at Jesus in the garden, all that we can say is, oh, how different Jesus is from us. And so we can say this, there is one man and one man alone who has rendered himself to God wholly and completely without reservation, without misstep, without compromise, and it is Jesus Christ. And it's here we find the solution that we're looking for. And we can ask, well, what does this perfect man do? What does this righteous man do? What does this obedient man do? And when we answer this question, it brings us to the meat of the gospel because it's this. Jesus takes his perfect life, he takes his obedient life, he takes his righteous life, and he makes atonement for the sins of his people. Jesus says, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. What beauty in these words. We have not rendered ourselves to God. We have not paid back to God, but Christ comes and he makes payment for his people. That's the gospel. And so Jesus summons us. He says, render to God the things that are God's. And here in these words, we find ourselves exposed. We find ourselves saved. We find ourselves killed. We find ourselves made alive by Jesus' words. Bad news, we haven't rendered ourselves to God. Good news, Jesus has rendered himself to God for our sake. And so the question is, well, how do we, what do we practically do with these words that Jesus has given us? Or returning to how we began this sermon, what does it mean to join Jesus' revolution? What does it mean to fall in among his ranks? What does it mean to follow after him closely? Well, we can return to Jesus' first words in the Gospel of Mark. Jesus says, repent and believe in the Gospel. And this is where our application is found. What does it mean to render yourself to God? It means to believe and it means to repent. So our first application is this. We must believe. So the life of Jesus is before us. We can't miss it in Mark's gospel. There it is when Jesus was in the wilderness, obedience. There it is in Jesus' ministry, obedience. There it is in the Garden of Gethsemane, obedience. There it is upon the cross, obedience. And our disobedience is evident as well because the more we look at Jesus in his perfect, righteous life, the more we become aware of our own sin, the own stain upon our own clothes. The more we look at perfection, the more we become aware of our own imperfections. But this is where faith comes in and this is where faith is so important because when we believe upon Christ, his obedience becomes our obedience. And when we believe upon Christ, his, our disobedience becomes his disobedience. The scriptures teach us the gospel. They say, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Or elsewhere, Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. And so we ask our question, well, what does it mean to join Jesus' revolution? Well, it means to practice faith in Christ. And Jesus bids us to faith this morning. He calls out to us and he says, take my obedience as your own, for I will take your disobedience. 
That's how we join the revolution. We practice faith in Christ. There's a second application. We repent. Jesus says, render to God the things that are God's. And this word gets really practical when we sit on it for a while. And so we ask ourselves, well, what does it mean to repent? What does it mean to repent? We use that word all the time. We've used it a lot in this series on the Gospel of Mark. Well, what does it actually mean to repent? And so first of all, when we repent, we have to acknowledge and we have to confess our sins. And we can illustrate this with thinking about a mirror and a smartphone. So I assume all of us have mirrors in our house. It's a pretty standard feature, not too high tech. And so what do mirrors do? Well, probably all of our mirrors are a little bit different. Some are bigger, some are smaller, some have different shapes, but they all have this in common. Each morning when you wake up, you go into the bathroom, flip on the light, stand in front of the mirror. What does the mirror do? Well, it speaks the truth. There you are. Now, mirrors are different than smartphones. You think about a smartphone. We all have smartphones. Smartphones can easily change our appearance. There's things called Photoshop. So you've got a bit of acne on your face. What do you do? Well, you get out Photoshop and you can get rid of it. No blemishes. There's apps like Instagram. There's these things called filters. I'm not sure how you use them, but they can apparently make your appearance more pleasing if you use them. But here's the difference. When you step in front of the bathroom mirror, regardless of what you've done on your smartphone, regardless of what you've done with Photoshop, regardless of whatever filter you've used, you stand in front of the bathroom mirror and you're told the truth. And this helps us with repentance. What is repentance? Well, repentance is throwing away your smartphone and standing squarely in front of the mirror. In repentance, we no longer try to soften up this corner or offer an excuse for that choice or action. No longer can we hide or ignore those desires lurking in our hearts that are contrary to God's. No, in repentance, we stand before the mirror and we confess the truth about ourselves to ourselves, to our neighbors, and to our God. David is so helpful. Psalm 51 David says, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. What is David doing? He's standing before the mirror. He's speaking the truth about himself. First of all, he's speaking the truth about himself to himself. And we need this because we so often lie to ourselves about who we truly are. Then David speaks the truth about himself to all of Israel. David pens a psalm about the truth of his life. He's speaking truthfully. And most importantly, David speaks to his God, speaking the truth against you and you only have I sinned. So we repent, we acknowledge and confess our sins. We stand in front of the mirror. This brings us to a second work when in repentance we mourn over our sins. Standing in front of the mirror is a painful work for sinners. Because when we stand before the mirror in repentance, we don't see what we want to see. We don't hear what we want to hear. When we throw away our smartphone, all of these delusions that we have, have, have built up in our lives, and we finally stand before the mirror, we actually see how deformed we are in sin. And this can be an exceedingly painful thing if you're told you're beautiful your whole life, and then you stand before the mirror and it all falls away because you see yourself for who you truly have become in sin. But what makes this even more painful is that our sin has not only deformed us, but it's also offended our God who made us. 
When we stand before the mirror, we realize just how, how much we have pained the God who has made us. We've sinned in light of his mercy, his grace, his patience, his tenderness, his kindness, his love. And so in repentance, we, we speak the truth about ourselves and we mourn. And third, in repentance, we make a return to God. So in repentance, we do not simply just stare at the mirror and catalog all of our sins. In repentance, as we look at the mirror, we, we simply don't weep over what we've become. No, repentance is a gift of Christ. And he gives it to us that it might bear fruit in our lives. The gift of repentance always leads to change. God gives us this mirror so that we might look at ourselves and that our appearance might be changed by his gifts. And so it gets practical. And I urge you to stand before the mirror in repentance, to look at yourself. So brothers and sisters, stand before the mirror and consider your eyes. Look at them. Stop looking at that which displeases God and and render your eyes to the God who made them. Stand before the mirror and consider your ears. Stop listening to that which displeases God and render them to the God who made them. Or consider your mouth. This hits all of us. Stop speaking that which displeases God and render your mouth to the God who made it. Consider your heart. Look at it. Analyze it. Stop desiring that, loving that which displeases God and render it to the God who made it. Consider your mind. Stop thinking upon that which displeases God and render it to the God who made it. And we could go on and on and on as we look in the mirror, but this is what God calls us to do in repentance. Look in the mirror. Confess your sin. Mourn your sin. And return to God. And so we ask, what does it mean to join in Jesus' revolution? What does it mean to participate in the kingdom of God? Well, Jesus preaches, repent and believe in the gospel. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, we are so thankful for your word. We need this word today. We're so thankful for Christ Jesus and his call to faith. We have not rendered ourselves to God, but we are so thankful that Christ has rendered himself to you for our sake. Righteous we are in your sight because of Christ. And Father, we ask for your mercy and your grace to be at work in us as we walk in repentance. It's a scary thing to stand before the mirror and to speak truthfully about ourselves and to make change. Father, we pray for the fruit of repentance to be obvious in our life. Oh, Father, would you be pleased to do these things in us and for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.